Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Challoner. The podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating the people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. If you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Joining me on today's programme on a sunny but cool autumn day here in the capital is Daniel Agoye. Daniel is the head of finance at Solomon Capital Investment Group, an investment firm with interests in healthcare, commercial property and sports management, spearheading all aspects of financial leadership and accounting. Since 2017, Daniel has also been Group General Manager of Bethesda Healthcare Limited, one of the divisions of Solomon Capital. Uh, Daniel, very warm welcome to yourself and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you, Scott, for and uh, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. Now, of course, the big problem that's dominated the headlines throughout 2020 has been, of course, the COVID-19 pandemic, and it's proven to be such a significant challenge for leaders within all walks of life. But for you and your yeah. businesses, to what extent has it had an impact? Yes, um, obviously, it's a global pandemic, so it's had an impact on everyone. Uh, it's been like a bolt from the glue. Um, but, you know, we, we uh, as leaders, we have to, when the reasons why, the reason why we're leaders is because when, when, when things happen, we have to be able to step forward and uh, take action that maybe not everyone will be able to take. With regards to our organization, uh, we have had uh, a significant impact because we work in the healthcare. We look after the most vulnerable in the community uh, because we have uh, care homes, nursing homes, and residential care homes uh, within Hampshire and West Sussex at the moment. Uh, so there, there has been a significant impact in the way in which we operated uh, from, I'd say, from uh, February time, uh, you know, up to up to this time, and that's that's going to continue in the next uh, year, I believe, uh, until we have a vaccine uh, for this uh, COVID-19, uh, we will have to carry on working the way we are working now, which is significantly different from the way uh, we'd, we'd worked before. We, uh, I'll just give you a quick example. Previously, obviously, we had uh, family members and relatives who would be able to come in and help, you know, with making sure with, with the well-being of of the residents, so we we, we call out. We, some people call them clients. We call them residents, but because we believe that they are home, which is our care homes, is their home, and so we are there to facilitate uh, the best possible uh, welfare and health that they could possibly have whilst they are with us, whether they are with us for a month, a week, a year, five years, or whatever time uh, period of time they stay with us. But very important is the families. And the relatives and the and their friends that are able to come around and spend time with them, have a cup of tea, have a piece of cake, you know, have a, a quick chat. Um, all of that stopped obviously because at the beginning of March we were one of the first care groups that stopped uh, visitation because we had followed through what was happening uh, in in China and then we followed up in Washington. We saw what had happened in some care homes. We saw how that was impacting care homes, and immediately we started putting measures in place. This was back in January, February, uh, to start making sure that each of our homes had stock of PPE uh, for at least two months. We also had uh, a strategic stock uh, stockpile of all sorts of things that you can think of, including asthma suits uh, and all sorts of things that you could think of. We had stock of that because we weren't sure where the pandemic was going to go. But like, but like a, a go back, we had all of that in place, but we had to stop visitation. And stopping visitation meant that our family, uh, family members were not able to come in and offer kind of support that they would offer to these residents. So that means that staff had to basically uh, deputize, apart from doing their job, they also had to deputize as um, 
basically family members because the only way they could speak to family members was either through video calls, uh, uh, WhatsApp videos, or Skype, or things like that. And some of the residents could not understand that, why, why their parents, sorry, why their children, for example, couldn't come, or why their partner could not come in to visit them. Also, because some of them had dementia. So that was difficult. And we had to make sure that staff were aware and they were very clear of what the pandemic, of, 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 of what the virus was. So we spent a lot of time explaining to staff as it changed. WHO uh, was giving us information. Like I said, we followed through what was happening in, in Washington. We looked at, we, I listened a number of times to Governor Cuomo in New York because they were ahead of the curve. Uh, so we had to observe. And I, and I believe in, in, in this, at this point of pandemic, that adaptive leadership is very critical. So you needed to observe what was happening uh, in other places, especially because there were, they were, they were a couple of weeks, or in some cases, a couple of months ahead of us, to understand what was happening there and how we could try and uh, make sure that it didn't happen to us. So, and, and those were the things we did. So, but we needed to make sure we couldn't do it alone as leaders. We had to carry along all of our staff. And the only way we could do that was to be very open and transparent to them, explain to them all we knew about how the virus was being transmitted, explain to them what we had put in place to make sure that they were uh, secured as much as possible, uh, all the PPE, even things that you know they didn't know, like shoe covers and, and various things like that. We had everything in stock, and they knew that we had everything that you know, was required for months, for at least... Uh, two months in each home, and we had strategic stock of another three months uh, for, for the group. So we, we, we made sure they had that information and told them that for our residents, we had to be there for them. We, we needed to show that we're not just there as staff. We had to face this uh, virus, and we had to work together uh, right at the code phase to make sure that we supported our residents and to make sure that we didn't have the virus in. I can say proudly and you know uh, again I'm a man of faith so we thank God that we are uh, up to this point we, we, we've not had one person either, uh, um, uh, one resident pass away from the virus within our group and we, we, are, we are very grateful uh, for that. You, you also as a, as a leader also have to be strong uh, in the sense that right at the beginning of the pandemic although we shut down and, and we made sure we had buy-in from all of our all of our relatives, we had one or two who couldn't understand why they couldn't come in. We had to explain it to them. We're just trying to secure and protect um, your family member as well as all of the family members that are that got um, uh, relatives that have got residents within our home. So that th- that process was very critical. So get your re- the relatives on board. So the family members, most importantly, get your staff completely on board. Very transparent and clear with them the, how the virus is transmitted, so they knew what to do. For example, you know where if, if you go to get your your, your, your petrol or, or, or diesel in your car, make sure you use hands free. You know all those kind of things. We went out of our way to support the staff to make sure that they had everything they need in terms of information about the virus, and also then to basically almost recruit them again or get them on board on our side to make sure that we work together to make sure that our relatives were protected and they had all of the support that, you know, they would normally have gotten from their family members. We made sure that that was done. So obviously before we used to have activity providers. So people come in, specialists, professionals who come in from outside and deliver activities within their own, which will stimulate and help stimulate the residents. That also had to stop. So we had to then make sure find within our staff the ones that are quite good in activities and we bought a number of things with, because we had to then deliver those activities in house. So we had uh, different tea parties, we had different activities that we, we set up inside uh, and within each of our homes to make sure that was there. Uh, but I, 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 for example, live in, live in London and I have to travel into each of, each of our care homes. Um, we, we did that every single day. There were days when you would be on the road and it would just be you on the motorway on the A3 or on the M25 because there were no cars. Every, was, the shutdown was all across the country. Well, you had to do that because the fact that your staff see you around gave them the confidence to carry on doing 
doing everything that you told them that will work. And they see right now, because unfortunately we saw other chaos who um, lost a number of people, you know, from from the virus. Uh, but we were able to, uh, up so far, we've been able to stand uh, where we didn't run out of any 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 PPE. We 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 our staff, you know, worked hard, and uh, we, they've been and we try to reward them to just keep them on. We know we are going to the second wave potentially now, uh, and we have employed exactly the same thing that we've done in the first time because it worked and uh, got our staff again on board to make sure that we're all locked in to make sure that we deliver the best possible care that we can within this period, you know, uh, for our, our residents. So it seems like you've done plenty there and it shows some incredible leadership to do all of that to make sure the communication channels stay open during this time. Staff know exactly what's expected of them and you can really chart a course through all of this, absolutely. And having been part um, of the head of that strategy, is there anything you'd say that over the last few months this experience of managing a crisis has taught you, Daniel, as a leader? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's, It's very, very clear that you have to observe that's the first thing I believe. Uh, as a leader, you have to be very—you have to listen to the floor, to what uh, the fears and the concerns of your staff are. Because obviously, it was a pandemic; no one knew what was going on. Uh, so uh, you needed to look, uh, observe, but at the same time, you then needed to step back and look at what's going on around the world. What information we you you, you get from? In, in this case, we had from WHO, we had from the Public Health England. We had from the Care Quality Commission, the CQC. And like I said, we spent, uh, observed um, what was going on in, uh, uh, in uh, very little we could get from China, apart from what we could see, um, you know, on, on TV or online. But it was, we, we got a lot more information from America and we got a lot of, a lot of information from Italy. And so that listening and, and on, on understanding, observing and listening to your staff or the people that you're working with, understanding their fears and finding a way to address that and to show them that you're in there, we are in it together. So basically, we will do this together. So you have to adapt. So maybe some of the things that you would normally do previously, you, you, this is completely new. So you've got to adapt your, your leadership style where maybe you would have been, uh, you would have maybe been quite firm in a disciplinary sense. Maybe you want to pull back at that point and say, understand from the point of view of the staff, it may be that they're just completely scared. And maybe uh, their, their family members have told them, you need to leave, don't be in healthcare anymore, because we believe everybody is uh, catching the virus there and all of that. And showing them the way to be able to carry on doing their work, which they enjoy, but at the same time, doing it safely and doing it in a way that they are, you're supporting them as much as possible and also encouraging them. So that, that, that was very important uh, for me. So. Very, very keep an eye on what's happening around you and also on the, on the larger pattern uh, uh, and, and what's happening out there. And then you can use all of that together to help you uh, determine what is the best solution for your own organization. And that's what we've, we've, we've done and we, we carry on doing. And thinking also, about, yes. Mm-hmm. Sorry, one, one, one last thing also very critical is that you must plan. So, um, when you've observed these things and you've, you, you've figured out, you know, this is what's going on, like I said, you've got to then plan. So there was no PPE anyway. We couldn't find things uh, later on. But when we started ordering these things early, some of them took six weeks to arrive, but it arrived on time for us b- before the pandemic was really, uh, you know, very high in the UK. But we were already ahead of that curve. So many people, in fact, we had to, uh, we had to help uh, some other care homes around us, and even a local uh, clinic. We had to help them with PPE because we had so much stuff uh, because we had planned ahead. And just thinking about planning ahead for the future now, Daniel, just before we do wrap yeah. things up on the, uh, the programme today, over the course of the uh, the next year, um, it looks as if there'll be quite a tricky winter ahead and um, we'll be living under the new normal and under these restrictions for quite some time until there is a working vaccine, be that by the spring, be that even later on. But over the course of the next 12 months, what is it that you're really hoping to have achieved at Solomon Capital and indeed Bethesda Healthcare? And where do you see yourselves being this time in 12 months? Yes, I mean, um, thank you again, uh, Scott. I believe the uh, until we have a vaccine, I do not see 
um, how this will really be brought in under control. I know some people have been muting about um, having lockdowns, but lockdowns, uh, basically national lockdowns, I believe that that's, from my point of view, I believe that uh, that would be a mistake because uh, there is an economic impact, uh, uh, you know, which will which would affect a lot of people who have lost their jobs, a lot of redundancies, and uh, and that has its own effect on people, uh, short term and long term. You know, we had a situation where people weren't going to school, and uh, it, it affects the, the the people who are uh, uh, least privileged in the in the in the society more than more than others. Yeah, so so we, we, we need to be able to work with this at the same time, keep some kind of economy going where uh, the company is not completely, sorry, the, the country is not completely shut down and we are able to work with it. In the healthcare, we are really big on uh, infection control. So that's, that's a big part of what we do, even before COVID, even before the pandemic. So um, this was just an additional layer for us just to be better and to be more on top of what we were doing. So yes, we, we're doing that, and I feel that we can we can live with that. We've also found a way of asking of, of getting some families back uh, in terms of having window visits when the weather was better. We were having garden visits, so you know, so those kind of things, and and, and there are various other modalities that are coming into place now to see how we can do that in a safe way where people can come in and have and and and, and still see their family members, because that's very critical. You know, you have situations where uh, parents uh, have not been able to see their children, you know, for for months, you know, and, uh, uh, and and this, we want to try and change that. So I'm sure there will be new things that will come up that will help us to be able to do that over the next 12 months. But I believe that with regards to how we've been operating, there's, I don't think there's going to be any significant change within the healthcare side, because we're already big on infection control. We just stepped it up, and just to make sure that we are we are doing things like donning and doffing properly. People are using the the, message, the right PPE at the right place and, and at the right time, and you know social distancing and things like that. We just a lot more and having meetings uh, where everyone is you know socially distanced and still using masks. Those are it was strange when it started, but now we are so used to it. It's almost becoming a normal thing within the healthcare, healthcare sector. So I believe that we, we, we need to keep on, on that because if we, if we take a step back and we are a little bit lax, there will be, uh, uh, it, there, there will be again, significant debts um, within, 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 within the care homes. But I believe with what the government instituted, which is a weekly testing of staff and a monthly testing or 28-day testing of, of, of residents, that's also helpful because it helps you to keep track of what's going on with your staff. Because really, the only way uh, the, the residents will be infected is more from the staff side because staff go home, uh, a number of them go home, and they come back, and you know, and they may bring it in. But because they are tested every week, that kind of helps us. So the government has given, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, I have to say thank you to them for doing that. Uh, but with regards to the general economy itself. I really don't think that you know shutting everything down is the way forward. I believe that we have to find a way in which we're able to work uh, with, uh, with you know with, with with this virus, and it is until we get a vaccine. And once we get a vaccine, I think that will start uh, helping because then people will be able to um, uh, you know you know you know at least have some protection against against this virus. Certainly going to be an interesting few months to come for sure as we start to see how um, this pandemic does develop from here. And I think just given how many variables there still are in this, Daniel, and just how um, enlightening it's been having you join us to share some of your views today as to what's been going on, I think it would be great to catch up at some point in the next 12 months and welcome you back onto the show just to see how things are starting to pan out and we can reassess just what's happened since we last spoke. Uh, Scott, I'll, I'll be happy to to come and and and, and share our experiences again. Um, we, uh, we 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 work uh, within our group uh, as a team. We have um, uh, some senior people from uh, different backgrounds that are, that, that 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 lead, uh, you know, the, the 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 company, and we work together. But we and, and we meet and discuss all these things together to make sure that the home constantly and the group constantly moves forward. I'll be happy to share those experiences. 
and you know our success is hopefully uh, like I said mm. we are COVID free and we have been uh, to, to now and we hope that the next time I talk to you I will still be able to say that you know that's that's important and to keep our, our residents safe and make sure that they they are they are they, they are as happy as they can be uh, within this period. Mm, yeah, let's certainly hope there'll be some positive news to share by that point in time, Daniel. Um, for now, it's been such a pleasure welcoming you onto the airwaves with us. And most importantly, do take care and do stay safe with all that's still going on. And that goes for everybody associated with the business as well. Thank you, Scott. You too. I'd, you. Al- I'd also like to extend that message to all of our listeners tuning in today. Please do stay well be considerate of others and look after yourselves because it does make such a key difference in saving lives during this time. Um, It was a pleasure for me to welcome Daniel Ogoye onto today's programme, Head of Finance at Solomon Capital Investment Group and also Group General Manager of Bethesda Healthcare. Uh, Coming up next on the programme, we'll be joined by Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and incumbent Leaders' Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords having been elevated to Parliament's Upper House in August 2015, and that followed a distinguished political career, which he enjoyed despite being blind from birth. Lord Blunkett served as the MP for the Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years, as well as serving in a number of senior positions in the Cabinet of Tony Blair during his Premiership. I hope that you all enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with Lord Blunkett himself, and that is coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to. But we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. 
Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the prime minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the, public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's Uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of 
getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of... Um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different Prime Ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because Mm -hmm. My experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue all of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Donald Cummings. Uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding my only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centres in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. 
Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real, on the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people have criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You, you, can, you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack? What happens if there's an energy shutdown? Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations? that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the, for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future 
on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a professional lawyer who, as Director of Public Prosecutions, 
led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector. People with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Sakir is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Sakir need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Mr. Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did 
in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.